0: Welcome to Worship with Dawson Memorial Baptist Church. At Dawson, we seek to be found faithful as God's people as we become and help others become faithful servants of Jesus Christ. Now join us as we worship God through the teaching of His Word in today's message. Well, good morning, church. It is wonderful to see everyone. I hope everyone had a wonderful Christmas and that you are ready for 2024 because it is definitely upon us. I don't know if you're like me, but it feels like this year has just flown by and it's really hard to believe that we're actually saying the words that it'll be 2024. Uh, I'm excited to share with you all this morning uh, from God's word. We're going to be in Luke 23 uh, and Hosea 6.1. If you want to find your way there, Uh, we'll be spending some time in those scriptures um one of the things that I love that God has uh, just put this innate ability within each of us is this desire to, first off, connect with Him, but also the desire to connect with other people. Um, there's just something, it doesn't matter if you're introverted or you're extroverted, there's something about you want to be around people, you want to hear from them, you want to get to know them. And one of the ways that we do this is through asking questions. And one of the questions, probably one of the most common questions that people ask in an attempt to get to know people is, how was your weekend? Uh, It's a real easy question to ask, you know, how was your Friday, Saturday, Sunday, whichever day you want to talk about, or if you want to talk about the whole weekend, Uh, it's really easy and people can kind of share as much or as little as they may want to share, depending on what's going on. And they've got lots of options. Probably most weekends are pretty standard for people. There's 52 of them, but occasionally there are some of those weekends that are different. Something about them is a little different and stands out. And so we're more inclined to share. Well, one of those for me, I remember very vividly, uh, was I just graduated from college. I'd taken my first full-time ministry position uh, at a church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And so I go up there, and one Friday, I'm driving down the road, and I drive by this car dealership on the right. And I noticed sitting there in the parking lot with a used sign on it was this Land Rover Discovery. And I, I love these cars. Absolutely loved them. And so I knew that I just graduated from college. I'm working at a church. I didn't really have much money, but I decided to stop by and just take a look at this car just to see what's going on with it, you know? So I pull in and the salesman comes out and he's like, what do you think? And I said, well, I've always loved these cars. And, and he's trying to work his magic and asking me questions. And I'm like, yeah, I just, you know, I took this role as a student minister of this church down the street. He goes, "Oh yeah." He goes, "Well, why don't you take the car for a spin?" And I said, "Well, uh, I probably don't need to. I've got a lot of errands I have to run this afternoon." And he goes, "No, just take it for the whole afternoon. Just take it. It's fine. Just bring it back before we close." And there's that time in your head. You're like, "I probably shouldn't do this," but then something says, nah, eh, why not? Let's do it." And and disclaimer: I'm 21 years old at the time, so the brain is not fully formed. <laughs> okay, and so I take this car. And I go to run my errands, and one of the things I was doing, I was going to pick up a couple of our high school students to hang out. So I pick up these three high school guys, and then one of them has this really great idea. He said, hey, this is four-wheel drive, isn't it? And I said, well, yeah, it is. He said, well, why don't you, let's, let's take it off-road. Let's see how it handles off-road. And, and again, there's those justifications in your mind, like, well, hey, yeah, if I'm considering this car, I probably need to know if it can handle being off-road, right? So we go off-road, and we're going through these little mud pits and everything, and you know, it's kind of having fun, and then we come up to this one larger mud pit. And I, so I build up some speed, and I hit this thing, and I, I'm not making this up, y'all. I sunk this car down to the windows, <laughs> And of course, at this moment, I'm like, I just bought this car. <laughs> this is now my vehicle. There is no going back. So I'm gonna end the story there. I promise you I will finish it here in a little bit, okay? I'm gonna leave you, I'm gonna leave you hanging a little bit, okay? This morning, I want to ask that question, how was your weekend in the context of the Jesus' death and resurrection, okay? Um, so Friday is this day that, that Jesus died. Okay, the darkest day in the history of the world. And then we have Sunday, which is this amazing day where the stone gets rolled away and there's this death-defying, grave-defeating, fear-destroying, incredible day. But what about Saturday? If this is the weekend, what about Saturday? What happens on Saturday? So in order to understand the full weekend, we have to look at the beginning of it, which is Friday, okay? So we have followed Jesus through this triumphant week, this intense scrutiny, um, you know, and Jesus going through everything that he went through, but this constant commitment to what he knows must be done. And we come to Friday, which is known as Good Friday, uh, even though it was the day that he suffered before us, we know it was good because of what he accomplished on that day. So let's look deeper at Friday's events so we understand the full context of the weekend. Let's begin by examining the trials, okay? So there is this political structure and climate that surrounds the day, and the ruling nation Rome uh, is resented by the Jewish people. And so in their attempt to appease the Jewish people, okay, they start recognizing certain people and giving certain power to certain individuals. So typical politics, and the only Jewish leadership recognized by Rome was the Sanhedrin, so you've got in the story, you've got Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, uh, who's recognized and authorized political leader of Galilee. And you have Pontius Pilate, who's the Roman, Roman governor of Judea. Now these two, Pilate and Herod, they did not care for each other. Okay? So this is a little bit of the backdrop of what's about to happen in these trials. So we pick up in Luke 22, 66 through 71, we begin to see the trial take place. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. So the elders bring Jesus, their prisoner, to the Temple Mount where the Sanhedrin met. And they ask Jesus if he's the Messiah. They really are not interested if he is the Messiah. They don't believe that. They're really just trying to trap and ensnare him because of the plan that they had already set in motion. And the word Messiah meant anointed one or and carried these connotations of kingship. And it was a capital offense for the Roman Empire to claim kingship. So Jesus knows their intention and does not answer with a yes or a no. Instead of answering directly, Jesus alludes to the prophecy in the book of Daniel. Daniel. Throughout His earthly ministry, Jesus had called Himself the Son of Man, and this phrase to some could have simply meant a human being, but we know that the implication meant much more. And so we find this in Daniel. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him, and to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him." His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So God draws back the veils of time and space, and the prophet Daniel glimpsed at the Ancient of Day, granting authority and rule to glorify the kingdom to someone like a son of man. So when Jesus told the Sanhedrin that, that the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand, the power of God, he neither affirmed nor denied that he was the Messiah. Instead, he made a far more radical affirmation. He identified himself as the Son of Man in Daniel's vision, and that God was granting him divine power. So they're unable to obtain the response they wanted, so they pressed Jesus with another question. Are you then the Son of God? So, so far in Luke's gospels, angels, demons, and God himself had recognized Jesus as God's son, but Jesus never applied the title to himself. So Jesus replies, you say that I am. In other words, you are the ones making that claim. So the council twists his coy answer. So why do we need any more testimony, they said, since we heard it ourselves from his mouth. So the Sanhedrin has already reached their verdict and they have found that he is guilty. OK, so they are wanting the death penalty, but they know they can't do that. So they bring him to Pontius Pilate. And these are the, these are the three charges that are leveled against him. Number one, the Sanhedrin found Jesus subverting the Jewish people and subverting, subverting implied that Jesus had urged Jewish resistance against Roman rule, which he did not do. Jesus opposed the payment of poll taxes. And this was, of course, the opposite of the truth, because we know Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And third, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, a king. Now, of course, we know Jesus truly was the Messiah, the king, but he was not the kind of the revolutionary that they were implying. So he's taken to Pilate and Pilate says to him, are you the king of the Jews? And he says, you have said so. Same response, but Pilate comes to a different conclusion and finds him to be innocent, So the council members are not happy at this, and they claim that Jesus' provocations and all the trouble he was causing had actually started in Galilee and then spread to Judea and Jerusalem. And this revelation of where Jesus was from allowed Pilate a pathway out of this dilemma. Okay? So Herod Antipas was in charge of that area and just happened to be in Jerusalem at this this week. So Pilate asked him to render a verdict against Jesus. So Herod had already wanted to see Jesus, not for uh, the sake of exploring God's kingdom or anything. He wanted to see a miracle uh, for his own amusement. And so Jesus refused, didn't give him the miracle that he wanted to see. So he found his amusement and mocking him. And in this passage, we find where they did not like each other. It says, And Herod and Pilate became friends that, with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at an enmity with each other. So I love that Jesus brought people together, whether they were for him or against him, he brings them together, even in this. So with no conflicting verdict from Herod, Pilate assembled the leading council members and their supporters. And he outlines this judicial process. Okay, so number one, an accusation is brought. You brought me this man. The charges are presented as one who is misleading the people. Three, an investigation completed after examining him a verdict is given. I did not find this man guilty of any charges against him. Supporting the verdict is obtained. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. An acquittal is announced. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him, and a warning is offered. I will therefore punish and release him. So more than a thousand years earlier in Deuteronomy, we see that God commanded through Moses that two or three witnesses were needed in order to find somebody guilty or innocent. So we have Pontius Pilate and Herod and Antipas, a pagan Gentile and a nominal Jew provided two witnesses to the innocence of Jesus. Who will be the third? Think on that for a minute. So after finding them innocent, uh, they give in to the cries of the people who were saying, crucify him, crucify him. And we get to Luke, we see Jesus' crucifixion and death. Now, a large population resided along the Greeks and Romans in the North African city known as Cyrene. And we see Simon, who has come from Cyrene, okay, 800 miles uh, to celebrate the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. And as he enters the city that morning after Passover, um, he's greeted by the guards who make him wear or put on the cross and carry this cross behind Jesus. So Simon Cyrene did what Simon Peter promised and failed. He followed closely behind Jesus to the very end. So there's a large crowd of people surrounding Jesus in contrast to the smaller crowd of people that was there with the Sanhedrin. And the women are beating their chest and mourning and wailing loudly. And this is what Jesus says. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? So Jesus turns to them and they're lamenting and he's citing this prophecy from Hosea. See, in this text in Hosea 10, the Israelites rejected God as their king and brought false testimonies to the courts, just as what the Sanhedrin had done. And as a result, their religious shrines would be reduced to thorns and thistles, and the people would beg the hills and the mountains to take their lives. See, if, if the leaders of Israel were willing to murder an innocent man during a time of peace, and that's what he means when he says when the wood is green, how much worse would their actions be in a time of war? When it is dry. So, looking down from the cross, Jesus sees the soldiers as they gamble for his clothing and he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In his agony, he continues to be mocked and ridiculed by the soldiers, by the Sanhedrin. And then we see something pretty amazing. The second criminal does something that's pretty phenomenal. He recognizes his own guilt and he recognizes that Jesus has done nothing wrong. And by identifying Jesus as righteous, the second criminal provided a third witness to Jesus' innocence. So then six hours after sunrise, darkness descended on the land, and for three hours, the sun's light failed. Now, some have speculated with this that God uh, may have circumvented the patterns of nature to darken the land. Um, Some people have speculated that it may have just been a result of a natural phenomenon, uh, like a lunar eclipse. But whatever the reason for the darkness, the timing of the darkness in this particular moment points to an incredible, amazing God. So we get to Jesus' death, Luke 23. Then Jesus, calling out to the loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw that it had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts, and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So this is Friday. Now we enter into Saturday. What happens on Saturday? Saturday is the day in between, in between despair and joy in between confusion and blinding clarity, in between bad news and good news, darkness and light, life and death. And it seems kind of odd that so much is happening on Friday and so much is happening on Sunday. It seems like nothing happens on Saturday. At the heart of Jesus' story, the heart of human history are these three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and the first day and the third day are filled with so much emotion, events, drama, that we could literally talk about this for an entire year and barely scratch the surface. And then there's, there's Saturday. And even in the Bible, outside of this one little detail about the guards being posted to watch the tomb, we're told nothing about what's happening on Saturday. See, when Saturday comes, the disciples had not slept for a couple of days. We had Thursday night, we had the Passover, we had the Last Supper, and then the garden, and then the trial. And so we get to this Friday night, and they just collapse. They wake up Saturday morning. The city that was screaming for blood is now quiet because Jesus is dead. So they gather quietly. They they remember. That's what people do in these times. They think about what it is he taught. They think about what things he did, the people he touched, the people that he healed. And and they start thinking about maybe what went wrong. You know, Did Jesus fail? They they have to come to that that thought process of maybe he failed. Is Is that what's happened? And then at the worst moment, and they see this person whom they love hanging on the cross, he doesn't say on the cross, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He doesn't say, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. He doesn't say the Lord is my light and my salvation. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If the person closer to God than anybody else that ever lived can experience this kind of failure and rejection, where's the hope in that? Then they probably remember their own failures. They remember Judas, who who said, Jesus said, friend, do what you came for. He was supposed to be his friend, but we know what he did. Or maybe uh, Peter remembers saying, I do not know the man. I do not know the man. I do not know the man. And then when all the chips were down and Jesus needed them most, scripture says that they, then everyone deserted him and fled. They remember that on Saturday. Saturday is the day your dream died. You wake up and you're still alive. You have to go on, but you don't know how or you don't even know why. And so it begs this question, why is there a Saturday? In this story, why is there a Saturday? Does it further the storyline? If Jesus is going to be crucified and resurrected, why not just get on with it? Why can that not just be the weekend? Why is there a need for Saturday? And I think Scripture gives us the, this answer. I love this. First Corinthians fifteen three, the Apostle Paul writes that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and raised on the third day. Then He uses this phrase a second time, in accordance with the Scriptures. See, it turns out the Old Testament scriptures are filled with what might be called these third-day stories. Genesis 42, uh, Joseph's brothers get put in prison, and they're released on the third day. In the book of Joshua, Israelite spies are told by Rahab to hide from their enemies, and then they will be safe on the third day. Esther hears her people are going to be slaughtered, and she goes away to fast and pray. On the third day, the king receives her favorably. When Abraham is going to sacrifice his son Isaac, he lifts up his eyes and he sees the sacrifice that will save his son's life on the third day. There's a bunch of these throughout the scriptures. One of my favorite people always say, "What's your favorite scripture? What's your favorite verse?" One of my favorite verses in the entire world is Hosea six one, and I love this: it says, Come, let us return to the Lord; he has torn us to pieces." After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. See, there's this structure according to the scriptures. This is how life goes. It's a three-day story. On the first day, there's trouble. On the third day, there's deliverance, but deliverance only comes from God. So here's the problem with third-day stories. In a third-day story, you don't know it's a third day story until what day? The third day. So when it's Friday or even when it is Saturday, as long as you know, deliverance is never going to come. And that's the struggle with Saturday. Now, I told you I would finish my story about the car. So I am submersed in this vehicle, okay? Thinking, what have I done? And so... Long story short, if you're a Toyota fan, a Toyota came and pulled us out, okay? So we get pulled out and we were thinking, okay, we've got to clean this car. Not only is the outside and the engine had stopped running because of so much mud, but the inside mud had trickled in through the doors. And so this car is like really bad. So we go to a car wash and we start spraying this thing. We stopped up like three or four car washes um, because of so much mud. And we cleaned and cleaned and cleaned this car for hours to get it as best as we could. And so we drive it back or I get it, drive it back to the dealership right before closing. And thankfully, the salesman had already left for the day. So this is confession. I dropped the keys off and I left. So the next day, now this is before cell phones. Okay. So the little screamer. So we're playing phone tag. This salesman is calling me all day long and I'm trying to call him back to face the music. And we just keep missing each other. But this day was really rough because I'm sitting here thinking through, okay, how do I get a loan? Uh, How do I handle this situation? What do I do? And so that night I did not sleep very much. Because I was not able to talk with him on Saturday, but I knew on Sunday I had to deal with it. So I get up early in the morning, I go to church. I don't remember what the sermon was, but I was praying a lot. Okay, I'll tell you that. And so afterwards, I call him. We actually are able to talk. And he says, hey, Andy, did you, um, did you take this car off-road? And I said, uh, yes, I did. I'm really sorry about that. And just as I was about to say, and I will take care of things, he goes, well, actually, the reason I was calling you yesterday is we ended up selling that car, but I got another one in if you want to come and give it a test drive. <laughs> so... I did not go test drive it just FYI. Okay. But this was a rough weekend, not near as rough as this, but I I try to give a little context. So Jesus has to experience this agony of Friday and then comes Saturday. And I said that it seems that Saturday that nothing happens, but there is something that happens on Saturday. Silence. That's what happens. After trouble hits you, after the agony of Friday, you call out to God, God help me, God hear me, listen to me, respond to me, something. And there's what sometimes appears to be the absence of God, but it's not. Uh, author C.S. Lewis wrote his memoirs about coming to faith, and, and the name of this book was called Surprised by Joy. It's a great book where he, where he talks about how he came to faith. Um, and there's a little bit kind of a, more, a backstory to this is that C.S. Lewis was a lifelong bachelor 57 years. And so later on in life, he ends up meeting a woman who he falls in love with and ends up marrying. And uh, guess what her name was? Joy. So his friends would joke with him and say, hey, you really were surprised by joy. You know, they, they thought it was funny, but they were British. So. Um, so then after a lifetime of waiting for Lewis, and he's met this woman he loves, she ends up getting cancer and she passes away. And so he writes another book. This one's called A Grief Observed. And this is a quote from it. Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms when you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcome with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are not lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once, and that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our prosperity and so very absent a help in our time of trouble? See, we all have Saturdays. Live long enough and you're going to hit a Saturday or you've seen these Saturdays in people's lives. A husband, wife, uh, mother, father, wants more than anything in the world to save their marriage. And they're working really hard to try to fix things, but it's not happening. And they can't stand what it's doing to their children. But heaven appears to be silent. A mom and dad find out their child has a terminal illness and they pray like crazy, but it seems that there's only silence. You lose a job, you lose a friend, you lose your health. You have a dream for your child, a dream for your work. And on Friday, it dies. What do you do on Saturday when it feels like God is so absent? Here's three options that people normally take. The first one is despair. Um, A lot of people do this. Paul writes about this. He's writing to the church in Corinth. He says, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? In other words, apparently what some people said is there's never going to be a Sunday. It's Friday. It's always Friday. So don't get your hopes up. There's Sunday is never going to come. Death is the end. I've been there. I have felt that before. The next one is denial. Sometimes go this route and they're looking for simplistic explanations, impatience or easy answers. Um, Paul writes about this to Timothy. He says, that some have wandered away from the truth. He says they teach that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. In other words, we're saying it's, it's already Sunday. The resurrection has already happened for all of us. And so if you're having any problems, if you're still sick, if your prayers aren't being answered, then, then you just don't have enough faith. You need to get with the program or, or God is not even real. That's one option. Then there's the third option. Wait. That's a hard one in our culture. We don't wait well. And when I say wait, I mean you wait on and with the Lord, not just wait around. Okay, this is nothing to do with passivity. It means that whatever I do while it is Saturday, I do with him. I learn to work with him when he feels far away. I rest with him. I try to learn from him. I ask questions of him. I complain to him. The book of Psalms, the single most common type of, of prayer is the Psalm of Lament. It's a Saturday. So I'm saying, God, where are you? What's going on? I need you. I need you. Why can't I hear you? So you can actually be with God on Saturday in the disappointment and the failure and the pain because we know he is our only hope. And he is still there with us. I love author Henry Nowen talks, gives a great illustration of this. He talks about um, acrobats and that there are flyers and catchers. And he says, people think of the flyers are the stars because they are doing somersaults in the air and it looks cool. But the real star is the catcher. A flyer has to fly. A catcher has to catch. The flyer must trust with outstretched still arms that the catcher will be there waiting for him. See, we can trust that God is there. He is going to catch us. See, the Bible says it is necessary for the Messiah to enter into Saturday. Matthew 12, 38, people are saying, Jesus, give us a sign. If you do something amazing, we will all believe. But he knows the human heart is such that just acts of power cannot transform a human heart. But he says, There is one sign I will give you, a sign of this wicked and perverse generation, and he calls it the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so the Son of Man Jesus will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It's another three day story. Now, you may be saying, well, three days and three nights, well, how does that correspond? Just a real quick word about how the Bible reckons time, okay? Even in our day, we, we count time, time a little differently. For example, and this is purely hypothetical, but let's say there's this really good husband, I mean, really good guy, okay? And they have two small children, and so he is going away to a conference. Now, he leaves early Friday morning. He returns late Sunday night. His wife says, you were gone three days, He says, no, 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 I was gone one day. I saw you Friday morning, and I saw you again on Sunday night. She says three days. He says one day. Who's right? She's right. Why is she right? Because she's always right. That's good biblical teaching right there, right? But also, the Hebrew system was inclusive when it came to reckoning time. They would count all of every day in any event that took place, so, so the significance of this is Jesus is saying, my story is like your story. It's a three-day story. I will go through Friday for you. I will go to Saturday for you. And y'all, this is a gift because this is our story. Saturday. Friday is behind us. Crucifixion happened a long time ago. We have hope because of what Jesus did and dying on the cross for our sins. But Jesus' return has not come yet. Not for me, not for you, not for the world. The ground we live in still produces thorns and thistles. We still face pilots and herods and crowds. Our bodies still bleed. We still age. People we love die. We live between Friday and Sunday. We live on Saturday. And this is a three-day story. See, the miracle of Sunday is that a dead man lives, The miracle of Saturday is that the eternal son of God lays dead. So he defeats our great enemy, not by uh, proclaiming his invincibility over it, but by submitting himself to it for each one of us. So here's what this means. This is really important. Whatever your pain that you have had or you will have in this next year, whatever rejection you have had or you will have in 2024, whatever dream has died, whatever longing has not been fulfilled, whatever your failure, whatever your regret, whatever your shame, whatever your disappointment, it is not the end. It is only Saturday and deliverance is coming. So don't give up, don't deny, don't despair, don't give in to the lies of the enemy and what this world says. Don't, hold on to Jesus. He is our only hope, a hope that has arrived and a hope that is to come. I wanna end um, this morning with a prayer prayer. And it's a prayer from a book called Between Cross and Resurrection, a Theology of Holy Saturday. And it's written by a guy named Alan Lewis, very smart guy. And um, this book actually um, didn't come out until after he had passed away. So this was truly a Saturday book. He wrote it between Friday, the shadow of death, um, and Sunday, the day of resurrection, where he came to meet his Savior. So this is our prayer this morning. Let's pray with me. God, the three-in-one, whose unity is realized in communal exchange between the Father, Son, and Spirit, eternal Lord, whose changeless, ever-changing being is fulfilled in the dynamic of history and becoming. Across the abyss of separation on the cross and in the grave, you have reconciled the world and swallowed up our death, making space for our humanity within your own divine community." Hear our prayer for a world still living an Easter Saturday existence, oppressed and lonely, guilty of godlessness and convinced of God forsakenness. Be still tomorrow the God you are today and yesterday already were. God with us in the grave, but pulling thus the sting of death and promising in your final kingdom an even greater victory of abundant grace and life over the magnitude of sin and death. And for your blessed burial into which we were baptized, may you be glorified forevermore. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. To learn more about our family of faith or to learn how to become a follower of Jesus, please visit DawsonChurch.org. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.